Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. All of our guests this season really recognized and celebrated the power of literacy. And that underpins a tremendous passion for improving access to effective literacy instruction and drives the search for increasingly efficacious methods and practices. Today, join Dr. Liz Brooke and a look back over the first season of the All for Literacy podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Liz Brooke. Thanks, everyone, for joining us as we look back at the first 10 episodes of season one of All for Literacy podcast. From journalist Emily Hanford to advocate Kareem Weaver and researchers Claude Goldenberg, Tiffany Hogan, Marianne Wolf, and Shane Piasta, we've been so fortunate with the guests who have made time to discuss literacy with both us and all of you. So today, what we thought we would do is pull out some of the common threads that emerged across those conversations this year, and then also give you a little bit of a sneak peek and set the stage for what's coming in 2024. So in the first episode, um, we started, as I mentioned, by speaking with journalist Emily Hanford and Dr. Tiffany Hogan. In 2022, the Sold a Story podcast brought ongoing tensions in the literacy education community into the mainstream news. In Sold a Story, Emily brought listeners into the homes and classrooms where families and educators grappled with reading. What I'm trying to point out in my reporting is it's not the absence of something, it's the presence of something. So what you find is the presence of an idea in a lot of schools, within the curriculum, within the professional development. And the idea is that kids don't have to learn how to sound out words. And sold a story was the question of how and why did that happen? And it tells the story of the idea that kids don't have to be taught how to sound out words, where it comes from, how it becomes so popular and how it became embedded in materials and assessments and other things that are very popular in schools. I love that perspective, right? It's not the absence of something, but the presence of something that students do not need to be explicitly taught how to sound out words. That was such a powerful perspective. And really, the pandemic gave parents a window into that classroom, the opportunity to see firsthand the methods used and how their children were responding, or maybe more importantly, not responding to those methods, right? So Emily exposed that there's not really that reading war between two different ideas about teaching reading, but there's an evidence-based method that's not being utilized in many reading programs out there or taught in many teacher prep programs, leaving both the educators and the students without the benefit of best practices that is grounded in research and the connection back to that human brain and how the human brain actually has to be taught to learn to read, unlike how we speak. 
Right from the start, this episode raised two related issues, the need for teacher prep and professional development opportunities that taught the science of reading and the breakdown between literacy researchers and educators in the classroom, preventing the free flow of information between practice and research. And these two themes will resurface again and again throughout this year's All for Literacy episodes. Speaking with Emily Hanford and Dr. Hogan offered a wonderful background on where literacy education stands today. So in episode two, I spoke with Kareem Weaver, an extraordinary educator and advocate. He co-founded Fulcrum Oakland to advance the state of literacy in his community and the state of California. Kareem brought that real-world examples of the consequences of the current state of literacy in education and the community's role in fixing it. I think that community piece was so critical to how he thought about it. An individual's ability or inability to read has a profound impact on their life, both personally and professionally. And he brought up a topic that's also near and dear to my heart, that literacy is a civil right and it deserves to be protected as such. It matters to me if my neighbor can read or not. It matters to me if their child can read. I don't want uh, black people who can't read. I don't want white people who can't read. I don't want Latino people who care. I don't want anybody right. to, to not ha- to not have that skill. Well, and you don't care if they're Republican or Democrat, right? Heck like everybody no. has Heck the right no. to read. In fact, because I also, first of all, I respect your humanity, mm-hmm. right? Forget about the politics. I respect your humanity. Two, I'm safer. My country is safer. My wife is safer when she walks to her car. I'm safer when I'm fishing on the bayou. Like our economy is safer. When we can read. When, when people can't read, they get desperate. What a powerful perspective, talking about not only literacy in terms of academic success, but our society. And again, that community perspective that he brought and what happens when folks aren't able to read and what happens in their lives and the, the turns they take. Um, He also raised the challenge experienced by educators. He mentioned himself in this. I know I've had this experience, but when educators have not learned methods grounded in the science of reading, they needed to seek out more information, more education for themselves. He highlighted that knowledge and practice standards like those from the IDA, International Dyslexia Association, don't just benefit students with dyslexia. Teachers that are educated in those principles are more prepared to teach reading and by extension, advance the cause of equity through access to literacy. You know, I don't want to hear equity slogans. I don't want to hear uh, mission statements. All wonderful. That's all wonderful. I always tell people, show me your budget. <laughs> And your calendar and your curriculum, and I will know what your values are. And I love this. It's it's not just talking the talk, right? It's walking the walk. And so when he talks about show me your budget, 
I had a principal when I worked at FCRR, a principal told me that he makes his budget based on the student assessment scores. So that idea of not just talking about equity, but how are you investing in your curriculum? What does your calendar look like for time dedicated to this topic? So even when we agree on the need to improve literacy, change is really hard. So Kareem offered a lot of ways that communities, school districts, and states can move the needle by concentrating on their budget, choosing curriculums backed by research, and whether or not they schedule enough time for educators and students to maximize the use of that curriculum. Episode three was informed, empowered, and equipped teachers are the key. Kareem's story of transition from an educator to administrator to passionate advocate also told the story of so many educators searching for resources and struggling to balance the demands of their time. Our third guest of the season, Carl Hooker, shared both the power of integrating technology and the resistance to change that prevents educators from making the most of their time and labor-saving resources. First of all, just sticking a kid on a computer and letting them learn how to read, that is not the answer. We know that teachers are still, they're the ones that are creating the experiences in the classroom. However, the technology can be an assistant for that. It's not going to replace the teacher. And I love that our quote-unquote technology guy made sure to mention that technology is not the answer, right? Teachers are empowered by the technology. They're not replaced by the technology. And his optimism for the opportunities of classroom technology are fueled both by his own experiences and observations in the classroom and his experience as a parent of a child with dyslexia. So adaptive technologies that adjust fonts or provide auditory support and adjust questions based on performance make education accessible to students like his daughter in a way that would not have been possible just a few decades ago. So while we need to be informed and intentional in how we use educational technology, it is opening doors for both students and teachers to explore the classroom experience in new and personalized ways. But again, it is never designed to replace the teacher. It is designed to empower them, right? Think about an electric bike. It empowers the rider right? It's not like a um, vacuum cleaner, that robot vacuum cleaner that replaces the human. Uh, It's like an electric bike where the technology is designed to enhance the teacher's performance, right? Technology is just one small piece of the education puzzle. And our guests for episode four, Trisha DeFazio and Allison Roser, are the co-authors of the book, Social Emotional Learning Starts With Us, Empowering Teachers to Support Students. Trisha and Allison tackle head-on the notion that SEL, or social emotional learning, takes away from instructional time in the classroom. One of the biggest pushbacks that you hear from teachers, and this has been the situation since the dawn of time, is that teachers don't have enough time, and they don't, and they don't need one more thing else on their plate. 
Both are true, but SEL is not one more thing on their plate. It is the plate, right? So we always make it a point to say, either you make the investment in creating connections up front, or you're going to have to pay for the effects of the disconnection later on. Either way, you're going to spend the time. This to me was a profound statement. We always talk about one more thing on the plate for teachers, but in this episode, that statement, it is the plate, was transformative for me in thinking about this underlying need of social-emotional learning, both for students and for teachers. And I think we're seeing post-pandemic more of a focus on social-emotional learning, which is really important. So in this episode, we define social-emotional learning as a process through which children and adults apply attitudes and skills necessary to understand and manage emotions. And we discussed exactly why it's so essential for a productive learning environment. Think about even just When you're distracted by an argument with a friend or you're stressed about something, how your focus shifts and think about how all of that can amplify and impact both as a teacher as well as a student in that opportunity to learn. So again, it's not one more thing for teachers to squeeze into the day. It is a part of a teacher's vocabulary and how they interact with students, a model of learning. It's a process of relationships. And again, I can't stress enough that we can't just think about the children's SEL or social emotional learning, but educators too. They can set the tone by utilizing some of these techniques for themselves The leadership in the building can focus on this, right? At the administrator level, peer-to-peer, colleague-to-colleague, we can understand and empathize with each other and make better decisions when our relationships are strong. Some of the best resources that our teachers have are right down the hall or in the classrooms next door. So that is something I highly recommend that you check out. Again, social emotional learning is not one more thing on the plate. It is the plate. That's a powerful message from episode four. In episode five, we talked at the state level and explored the impact of policy on education and literacy specifically. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have for this episode Then my friend and former colleague when she was at Mississippi, Dr. Kimyana Burke, she was part of that team that led the implementation of the Mississippi Literacy-Based Promotion Act, often referred to as the Mississippi Miracle. I had to build a lot of relationships first, you know, build the trust and the, you know, I'm here to make sure that you are successful. And that looks like me not allowing you to fail. That looks like me pushing you when you feel like you just want to give up. It looks different when I want the best for you. So throughout this episode, Kimyana talked here, she talks about those building of relationships, right? Building the trust. It's not just a bunch of steps on a piece of paper, but that the state was there to support the districts, the schools, the teachers, 
right? It was a very comprehensive plan. It was not just one thing. It was not just having professional development. It was not just having the right curriculum tools, right? It was very comprehensive plan. The language in the law was around all of these things that you would think are just happening in schools already, but it actually put it into writing, right? It had made it a requirement. So again, one of those things that people assume that the districts and schools might have professional development in place for their teachers, or they might already be using evidence-based practices. They might already have set up assessment tools to measure the progress. But as Kimiana said there, that they built it into the law. They actually put it in writing so that everybody could see what it was that they needed to have in place. And the recent NAEP scores show that it is vital as a nation that we continue to address literacy. There are more and more states putting policies like this in place, which is great. We need to continue to build those relationships as Kim Yana talked about. We have to have methods of accountability, not for um, punitive reasons, but to make sure what we're doing is working so we don't wait a whole year before we find out it didn't work. And we need to build, as Kareem talked about, build that community involvement as well, which they did in Mississippi. So localized creativity, explicit policy, focused and open to all the voices in the room. Now, some of our conversations in season one were bigger than just one single podcast episode. And that happened for us when I spoke with Stanford Professor Emeritus, Dr. Claude Goldenberg, in a wide ranging conversation about the evolution of his approach to literacy and the intersection of the science of reading and multilingualism. Claude held firm to the idea that literacy education should follow what we know benefits students. People say, well, the science of reading doesn't apply. They're the recipients, but not the beneficiaries of the science mm -hmm. of reading. That's so damaging. Right. Because it's so untrue. If you know really what the science says, whatever you call it, if you know what it says and what the findings are, then you'd have to rethink that. But they're... There's a lot of resistance. A lot of it's ideological. Part of it, I think, stems from the fact that there are a lot of populations of kids that have not been very well served. I mean, that's why I got into this education right. thing. This is such an important statement about the recipients versus the beneficiaries, right, for our emergent bilingual or multilingual population. We know that can be so damaging for these students because we have the evidence that it works. The science of reading, right? Some people thought, oh, it just works with students with dyslexia or it doesn't work with our students who are emerging bilinguals. And that is not what the evidence shows us. So the skepticism of multilingual communities 
and educators about literacy education is understandable though, right? There have been policies and practices that led to both over and under identification of emergent bilingual students for special education services, right? So some of the policies in the past have maybe not followed the evidence and have maybe underserved this population, but the tensions and the disagreements between, you know, some people call them the reading camps, these different camps, that can't be helpful. We are better served by coming together on the areas that we agree with and have evidence for, right, that it works um, with this important population of students. And I know Claude has done that, narrowing the gap, finding that common ground was a report that he co-authored. He met with a group of educators and academics, researchers across both camps, if you will, to try to improve and find that common ground and build standards from the research. I was not prepared when I started teaching junior high, and I was really not that well prepared when I started teaching first grade, even with a legitimate PhD. And I realized, much to my at first dismay, and then shock, and then realization that I'd gotten it all wrong, <laughs> that the teachers actually taught the kids how to read by teaching the letters and the sounds and how they combine to form words and the whole bottom-up thing. Right. I mean, these kids were actually like reading. <laughs> Like so many of our guests we've had on the podcast, including myself, Claude told a story of not being prepared to teach kids how to read. Again, this highlights the tremendous opportunity that teacher prep programs have to turn the tide in the direction of effective evidence-based teacher training. And just like we can't blame teachers, right? This is not a blame game. We can't blame the teachers because they were teaching what they were taught. But professors at these universities and colleges were also teaching what they have been taught. So again, it's not about blame. We don't want this to feel like a war, like someone won and lost and blamed. But as Maya Angelou says, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you do know better, do better. Right. And that is a theme I think that can apply across all of our lives in all aspects, but especially in this. So now that we know, and this is not new evidence. So that's, I think, a little bit of a nuance here. But some people didn't know about the evidence. But now that you know about the evidence, you need to do better. And that can be true of both the schools as well as the higher education institutes. So in episode eight, we explored another student group with differentiated literacy needs when Dr. Tiffany Hogan joined us again to explore identification, intervention, and implementation. Tiffany is immersed in the needs of readers with speech, language, and literacy disorders. She shared her work with us related to developmental language disorder, or DLD, which most people don't realize has a similar prevalence 
to dyslexia. But I bet our listeners out there, very few of you had maybe heard of DLD or developmental language disorder, right? And she was committed to not only sharing her research, but she's also very committed to making sure that she is connecting with those that are implementing that research. So implementing the knowledge we gain from the research in a way that supports teachers and learners. At all grades, we should be thinking through what are the barriers to children as they learn and have systems in place to really identify those barriers. So as children are learning across the grades, We should have some systems in place that if they're starting to struggle, that we should have a better sense of why and have some ready systems in place to determine why. So this is a really important point that we talked about. When you hear about the science of reading, you often hear it referred to as just decoding. But there is another part of that equation. You've heard of the simple view of reading, perhaps, right? And you have decoding or word recognition times language comprehension equals reading comprehension. The DLD students are the students that struggle with that language comprehension piece. And in this episode, I highly recommend you go back, listen in to what those students might present with in your classrooms, the DLD students. You might have some students who struggle with both, right? Or you might have more resources and knowledge about students with dyslexia. So she highlighted um, a commonly understood label is effective and essential. However, with DLD, it has been called many different things across the years, and oftentimes different labels are used. So that is why her statement about systems that can identify strengths and weaknesses, we need labeling or identification for purposes of intervention is really important, but also understanding underneath what that label means in terms of skills and what I need to focus on in my instruction. I'm very excited about thinking through Not only what is the best intervention, because that's still that work needs to be done, but really how can we work with educators to create a system that is facilitative to evidence-based practice and helps to reduce the barriers that are inherent to that system. So this is another area that Tiffany is really passionate about, which is, again, connecting it to the system not just researching in this black box, right? But making sure that we can help schools and educators create a system that makes it easier to implement these evidence-based practices, right? And reduce those barriers in that system. So when teachers understand, they learn about the brain and what pathways need to be created in order to learn to read, they are more prepared and identify when a student needs support and which aspects of the model, right? Is it more in that code-focused area or more meaning-focused, right? Word recognition or language. And when that knowledge is supported by evidence-based practices, it empowers educators to increase access to literacy across all their students. 
Now, in episode nine, we were honored to have Dr. Marianne Wolf help us recognize and honor October as Dyslexia Awareness Month. Marianne shared why the study of the reading brain changed her approach to literacy and her understanding of dyslexia. I became convinced that the study of the reading brain would lead me to be able to really reach in those lives at some small level and change teaching. So Marianne, if you've listened to her before, she beautifully marries cognitive neuroscience, the science of the reading brain, and a dash of humor. So if you're ever wondering, how can I approach cognitive neuroscience? You might check out one of her books in The Proust and the Squid, Marianne incorporates neuroscience, psychology, literature, and linguistics. It's really the story of how reading has shaped the human brain and experience. It's an amazing read. And the next or maybe current chapter of that reading experience comes to us on devices And she has a book called Reader Come Home, where she talks about digital literacy. So always the principle I have is not what technology is good or bad, but how can we instill wisdom into which technology to use for what purpose, for what individual, when and under what circumstances. Marianne's understanding of how the brain interacts with technology brings us back to episode three with Carl Hooker's emphasis on knowing how and when to use technology. Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a replacement of those teachers, but we want to improve access for students. We want to support and empower teachers. We want to enhance that learning environment and to do things carefully and intentionally. Marianne also highlighted the vital role of screening in improving access to literacy by equipping educators and students with the resources and tools they need, which brings us very neatly to our last episode of the season, episode 10. Dr. Shane Piasta joined me to discuss the need to more effectively connect what we know from research into the classroom. Again, that theme kept coming up throughout the episodes. What is preventing these evidence-based practices from being implemented? The body of knowledge of evidence that we know as the science of reading is very powerful but it requires knowledgeable and intentional implementation. That implementation depends on teachers. Teachers are doing things, lots of great things in their classrooms. So instead of this being a one-way arrow of research to practice, why can't we also have that arrow going the other direction where we're starting from what we see happening in classrooms that might be promising and then kind of do the research on that. I love that. Why is it a one-way arrow and why can't we look at what's happening and then see and do the research on that? That was such a powerful statement from Shane. 
We know that only about one quarter of our preparation programs are actually talking about all of the components of teaching reading. 25% of our universities are doing that currently. We hope again, now that people know better, they're going to start to do better and we will see that number rise. But we also know that professional learning is just the first step on the journey. However, when we start with teachers, we know that our systems and the tools that we're using to bring the science of reading to classrooms in a productive way are really going to provide that support, not only for the teachers, but also for the students. And when research and implementation are focused on optimizing access to literacy education, it brings us right back to that topic of equity for diverse populations, for students with specialized learning needs, and for communities around the world. I'm excited to see the recognition of literacy as a social justice issue and really thinking about what reading skill, why that is so meaningful within our culture and the fact that is something that propels forward progress. I think that's the bottom line of the science of reading kind of movement is that, you know, there's wisdom and expertise that comes with practice, but we can also be using science to help us identify practices that have the most promise for being able to better support all children. And I love that. I know that's a topic that is gaining more and more traction. It's not brand new, but the implementation science and looking at what are the strategies and practices that help facilitate the adoption of these evidence-based practices. So I loved that perspective that Shane brought to that episode. She also shares a great bit of information on the idea of proven and evidence and the layers of what evidence-based means. So I highly recommend you check that out as well. And all of our guests this season really recognized and celebrated the power of literacy. And that underpins a tremendous passion for improving access to effective literacy instruction and drives the search for increasingly efficacious methods and practices. In 2024, on the All for Literacy podcast, we will work to bring those two goals together by featuring both researchers and practitioners. And I hope you'll join me, not just by listening, but we need you to be part of the conversation. What are you seeing in your schools, your classroom, your communities, at your state level? I want to hear from you, and I want you to be part of the conversation in 2024. A little sneak peek about our first episodes in the new year featuring, again, researchers and practitioners. We're going to feature Dr. Sharon Vaughn and Dr. Jeannie Wansick as we talk about the importance of adolescent literacy. So much of the focus has been around K-3 and elementary, which is so critical 
but we have to make sure we're thinking about what the teachers and students need who are in fourth grade and above. So Dr. Sharon Vaughn and Jeannie Wanzik will take us through some of the research around that. And from the practitioner's perspective, we are excited to have Rhonda Nelson, who is a curriculum instruction and assessment coordinator in Bettendorf School District in Iowa. So I hope you join us in January for the researcher and practitioner kickoff to season two of All for Literacy. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 